This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for Igeret HaTshuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Bottom of page 1076, the last paragraph What is the straight, direct path to teshuva is by having a broken heart, breaking your arrogance, crushing your arrogance and your inflated ego, inflated sense of self. And he says, how do you do that? Since today we don't have the strength to literally fast. So how do you do that? He said, the best way to do that is by becoming a master accountant. A master CPA, spiritual accountant. Meaning, taking, being a master, like being the owner of the business, not like being a paid accountant, like being the owner of the business. When the owner of the business makes an accounting, it's with a whole different energy, enthusiasm, clarity, honesty, because the owner of the business has no interest in deluding himself, because it's his business, his life is on the line, it's a life savings. Either he's going to strike it rich or he's going to end up in the poorhouse. He's going to become homeless. So he has no interest in kidding himself. He has to know, is the business succeeding or is it not succeeding? Is he making a sale? He's not making a sale. Is he bringing him money? Is he in the black? Is he in the red? He has no interest in delusions. He has no interest in excuses. He has no interest in stories. He has to know the brutal truth, the brutal honesty. Versus the accountant... He does his job. The business is bankrupt. The business is not bankrupt. At the end of the day, he gets paid. He goes to sleep. He sleeps like a baby at night. It's not the same thing. So when a person takes responsibility for his own life, you realize it's your life. You're the only one who owns your own life. No one else can live for you. And if your life is valuable, your life is precious, you're going to make an honest accounting. Where am I going? What am I doing? Am I spiritually successful or not successful? Am I in the black? Am I in the red? You'll make an accounting. Soul search. He says, and the time to do this is before you go to bed, or before Tikkun Chatzais, those who wake up in the morning at midnight, to mourn the destruction of the temple. And that's where we left off What's the connection between mourning at midnight, the destruction of the temple, and your own spiritual stock-taking of yourself? Because it's the same idea. We all have a temple inside. And when we sin, we cause a destruction of our own personal temple. Everything in, out there is just a reflection of what's going on within us. We, are, we contain within us the whole world. We are a microcosm. So the temple represents our soul, the godly spark within us. When the temple is built, it means that our soul is, is flourishing, is fully able to express itself. When the temple is destroyed, 
That means that as a result of our own sin, we have caused our own temple to be destroyed. And, and we cause the Hashem's presence to be removed from this world. Because what we're saying basically is, when there's a temple, what we're saying is that this world coincides with godliness. Hashem can feel at home in this world. There's a temple. God is here. God is present. There's a building. What does it mean? There's a building. God is not physical. God needs a piece of real estate. But it means that God feels at home in this world. That this world is coincides and is reconciled with godliness. It's consistent and is at home. When there is no temple, what does it mean? The temple is destroyed. What are we saying? What we're saying is that godliness and human nature don't coincide, don't go hand in hand. It's alien. It's foreign. Godliness is foreign and alien and remote and abstract and disconnected from reality. It's not realistic. Torah, mitzvot, is not a realistic program for real people living in the real world. It's only a program for people, for saints living in Jerusalem or people who are retired or people who are too young to work or, you know, it's not a realistic program for real people who are engaged and involved in the real world. The demands of Torah and the lifestyle of Torah and this whole godly lifestyle, thinking like a Jew and acting like a Jew, thinking like a Jew, basically it, it's not consistent, it's not realistic. That's what it means. There is no temple. The temple is destroyed. The godliness and holiness and the Shekhinah, Hashem's presence, is removed. Is remote, is abstract. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel at home in this world. It doesn't feel natural. So when we live a Jewish life, and we're living like a Jew and think like a Jew and act like a Jew and expressing ourselves Jewishly, so we're saying that godliness is natural. This is who we are. This is the most natural thing in the world. When we sin... When we don't think like a Jew, when we don't speak like a Jew, we don't act like a Jew, what are we saying? Realistically, what are we saying? You know, this godliness is very deep, it's profound, it's abstract, but it's otherworldly. It doesn't, it's not real. For me, it's not real. For my nature and for who I am in the real world, it doesn't work. It's not a realistic program for, for real people like me in the real world, in my daily life. So you're saying that the Shekhinah, you're causing the Shekhinah to feel alienated. The Shekhinah doesn't feel at home. You're saying that the godliness doesn't belong here. Somewhere out of space, somewhere in heaven, somewhere otherworldly. And the whole purpose of creation was because God wanted to feel at home in this world. When God created the world, the world is a garden of Eden. Godliness and holiness and this world are completely coincided, completely consistent, completely natural, is the most natural thing in the world. At Mount Sinai, once again, godliness and this world became completely consistent. And then we build a tabernacle, and then we build a home, a permanent home, and then a second home. So godliness was at home. Like we learned in the previous chapter, when the Jewish people were on a very high level, during the temple, the Jewish people were on a very high level. So much so, if a Jew sinned, a sin which he had, the penalty was karas, you couldn't live. You couldn't live past the age of 50 or 60. You physically couldn't live, because a Jew received his life, his livelihood, his vitality from holiness. And if he disconnected himself as a consequence, he physically couldn't live. 
Because godliness and nature became completely consistent. When the temple is destroyed, not only aren't we making progress, we're going backwards. We're regressing. The temple is destroyed. But now, godliness and, and nature seem to be a clash. Clash. Conflict. Clash. Conflict of civilization. It doesn't work with our nature. It does work. So when we live a life of Torah and mitzvah, and we're building our temple, then our personal temple is whole, is intact. What we're saying is that our human nature and godliness could live, could live together. Now when we sin, we're causing the Shekhinah, God's presence, to be, we're exiling the, the Shekhinah from us. And through us, from, from the whole world. So our personal life is a reflection of what goes on in the macrocosm. So, when we live Torah and mitzvah, then we're bringing godliness into this world. We're rebuilding the temple, and when we sin, we're causing a destruction of the temple. We are prolonging the destruction. So at midnight, the Jews would sit and cry because the temple is destroyed. Why is the temple still destroyed? Because we are destroying the temple. Today, we destroy the temple because what we're saying through our life, we're saying is that our lives and Judaism and halacha and Torah, it's not realistic. It's a nice program, ideally. In some perfect ideal world, it doesn't exist. But in the real world, in the realistic world, I just can't live up to this program. It's just not a realistic program. So we are destroyed. We just destroyed the temple today. We prolonged the exile, prolonged the destruction. So it's not we're sitting today and crying about a destruction that happened 2,000 years ago. <laughs> the destruction is now, here and now. It's me. It's personal. And I take responsibility. That's a master account. You're taking responsibility. It's personal. And therefore you take it to heart. And that's enough to crush and to break your heart. To break your foolish ego or, or arrogance, foolish arrogance when you realize what we've done and what we've caused then your heart becomes completely broken and open and receptive to change to do teshuva to restore, to return to reconnect, to come back home because your heart is open your heart is broken if your heart is not broken you can't plant anything. If, if, if you don't plow first, you can plant, you can seed, you can rain even, nothing will happen. Nothing can grow. If the ground is, is hard and hasn't been plowed and crushed and softened and prepared, then nothing can grow, nothing can take root. So the first step is you have to have a broken heart. This is the plowing that softens the ground, that breaks and crushes the foolish arrogance and ego and habri and self-complacency. And, and now it allows your heart to be open. And then after you do tikkun chatzais, after you take this accounting, then when you study Torah, then when you're doing mitzvahs, you're building, you're creating, you're restoring, then you're planting seeds, and something will grow from these seeds. To contemplate... How through his sins he has brought about the exile of the divine presence, as noted above, and caused his spirit and divine soul to be uprooted 
from the divine source of all life and demeaned it to a place of defilement and death, namely the chambers of the Sitra Akra, his soul becoming a vehicle for them. Just as a vehicle has no will of its own and is completely subservient to the desires of its driver, so too is his soul subservient to the impure chambers of the Sitra Akra from whence it derives nature. Receiving from them vitality to endow his body, as noted above, that the nurture and life force of the sinner emanate from the Klipo and Sitra Akra. Meditation along these lines will bring a man to a state of contrition, itself a fitting, a fit offering to the divine name Elohim. Thus our sages declare that the wicked, while alive in their life, are called dead. This means to say that their life is derived from the sight of death and impurity, from the chambers of the Klippa, Klippa, and Sitra Akra, as opposed to holiness, which is true life. According to the verse that says, the dead praise is no mockery of the impoverished, God forbid, for it does not refer to those who are physically dead. Rather, the reference is to the wicked who, while alive, are called dead, and being spiritually dead are unable, are unable to praise God. For they are confused with alien thoughts while yet in their wickedness, and do not desire repentance as is known. The rabbis explain, it says the dead will not praise God. We have a concept, you're not allowed to laugh. You can't laugh at someone who's dead. um, That's why you're not allowed to study Torah. When you visit a grave, you cover your tzitzis. Because if you're wearing your tzitzis, you're laughing at the dead. Because they are not in a position to do mitzvah. And you are, so you're laughing at them. It's like, you know, being insensitive to them. That you're highlighting what you can do and they can't. So why would the verse say, why would King David say the dead can no longer praise God? What are you starting up with the dead? They can't praise God because they're dead. It's not their fault. They didn't choose to die. God took their soul away from them. So why are you comparing yourself to them? We, the living, we could praise God. But the dead can't praise God. Why are you at the expense of the dead? You're laughing at the dead. The rabbis say, we're not talking about those who are physically dead. That would be insensitive to say that the dead can't praise God. It's not their fault. You're not allowed to laugh at them. What we're saying is those that are alive, but they are spiritually dead. The wicked are those who are spiritually dead. Why? Why are they called dead? Because although they're physically alive, but where do they get their energy from? They get their energy from the negative forces. Because they have completely subjected themselves, submitted themselves to negativity. They've completely surrendered. They've become like a chariot. A chariot is more than just... It's like a tool in the hands of the rider. So the person who has completely surrendered to his evil inclination, he has surrendered. He doesn't even offer any fight. He gave up a long time ago. He just follows all his urges and all his instincts. Psychology 101. Just do whatever you like, whatever makes you happy. He's completely given up in the struggle. Believes that there's no value in the struggle. Believes that there's, no, there's no point in struggling. Just be a genuine bum and surrender to your baser instincts and celebrate. Be proud of all your lower, baser instincts. and Celebrate it and parade it and be proud of it. 
So this is a Russia. This is a person who has completely become a chariot, completely surrendered himself to negativity, to the negative forces, to the evil forces. And that's where he gets his life from. His life is received not from godliness. A Jew has Kabbalah so. Kabbalah means he accepts upon himself the yoke of heaven. So a Jew surrenders himself to Hashem. So where do you get your life from? You get your life from Hashem. I'm surrendered to Hashem. I'm Hashem's servant. I belong to Hashem. I'm His faithful soldier, His faithful servant. Where do I get my life from? Hashem. Hashem's wish is my command. I'm subjected to Hashem. I'm a chariot to Hashem. I'm a tool in the hands of Hashem. Whether more or less, but this is the general thrust of my life is I'm a chariot to Hashem. I'm a Jew. Who do I belong to? Who's my boss? I'm not the boss. Hashem is the boss. Who do I listen to? Myself or Hashem? Push comes to shove. Hashem says do something and I say don't do something. Who do I listen to? Hashem is the boss. I'm his chariot. So therefore I belong to Hashem. I get my life from Hashem. But a person who has surrendered to his baser instincts and nature and has given up the conflict and is violated. We're talking about here a Jew who has sinned, who has violated the worst sins, the sins with the penalty is curse. You get your life cut off. And he doesn't care. It doesn't stop him. Torah says, don't do that. You're going to lose your life. And he goes ahead and does it anyway with equanimity. What do I care? I just want to have fun. So this person... Where does he get his life from? His vitality, his energy? Not from godliness, not from holiness. From the exact opposite. From impurity, from unholiness. Which is called the place of death. Because it's the antithesis of Hashem. It's exactly the opposite of what Hashem wants. If you do what Hashem wants, you're connected to the source of life. Then you're alive. If you disconnect from the source of life, you disconnect it from Hashem, you do the exact opposite of what Hashem wants, which is what we call forces of impurity, negative energy, the exact ego, arrogance, the exact opposite of what Hashem wants, then you become dead. Then you're dead inside, spiritually dead. Yes, externally you can be very vital and alive, but internally there's nobody home you're completely dead there's nothing there's nothing alive there's no godliness there's no holiness there's no humility all you have is absolute ego arrogance and it's completely external superficial and there's 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 no spark of holiness left your life and vitality is the exact the antithesis of holiness impurity negative forces negative energy yeah externally you can make a lot of noise and you 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 your life is happening, but internally, you're dead. And that's what King David says. The dead cannot praise God. Because even the dead, even a person who is completely surrendered to his baser instincts, everyone likes to be spiritual. Everyone would love to be spiritual, as long as it doesn't cost anything. <laughs> everyone likes to be spiritual as long as it doesn't, doesn't, it's not accompanied by self-discipline, it's not accompanied by having to overcome something personal, having to change. I would like to live like a pig, but in the morning I like to be spiritual. <laughs> I, want to have, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to be everything. Why compromise? 
So a person, this is a person who wants to praise God. He has a desire to praise God. Yeah, sure, I want to be spiritual. It's fun. It's an experience. Lord, get me high. But I don't want to sacrifice. I don't want to live like a Jew 24-7. I want to live like Asaph. But I want to be spiritual. That's why Asaph is compared to the pig. The pig is one of the kosher signs. <laughs> it has split hoofs. It likes to show a split hoof. It likes to show off. Yes, it has kosher qualities. Internally, it doesn't chew its cud. Internally, it doesn't have any good qualities. But externally, I, yeah, I would like to have that also. Why not? I would like to have everything. Kosher, not kosher. I want to be everything. <laughs> he has kosher. He has not kosher. Asaph is everything. He's... Uh, Enlightened, he is uh, cosmopolitan, he is broad minded, he likes to have everything kosher, not kosher, he wants the best of both worlds, experience everything. So he wants to praise God, but because he's dead inside, because he has surrendered to his baser instincts, he's not receiving his energy and vitality from holiness. So Hashem won't let him praise God. Even if he wants to, he won't be allowed to. As al Rebbe says, they confuse him with alien thoughts from heaven. He'll be confused with alien thoughts. Since he's not ready to change, he's not ready to genuinely change, he's not ready to break his heart, he's not ready to really make a genuine change. He just wants to be spiritual without making a dent in his behavior or changing, really changing anything in his life. Hashem says, that doesn't work. That's not going to work with me. It's very nice, but it's not going to work with me. So even if he tries hard to praise Hashem, he's going to discover that his mind is being confused and bombarded with negative thoughts that will distract him and won't allow him to really develop a spiritual, spiritual level. Because his soul is so tied up with the negative. That's, that's his life source. That's where he's getting his life from. Consciously, that's where he's getting his life source. From evil, from negativity. So therefore his soul, as long as his soul is wrapped up and is, submits itself to this negative energy, he, can't, he doesn't allow godliness to come through. You want godliness to come through? Something has to change inside of you. That's why Hashem is compared to fire. It says, Hashem Hashem is fire. Why? Because in order for the fire to burn, something has to give. The wood has to burn. The wick has to burn. A person who wants Hashem, but I don't want to give anything. I don't want to sacrifice anything. I don't want to change anything in my life. I'm very comfortable and complacent. But I like, I like, to, be, I like to have all the advantages. So I like to be perfect also. I like to be spiritual also. Why not? It doesn't work. It can't work. Those who are dead cannot praise God. You have to do teshuva. You have to be ready to make a genuine change. Something has to shift inside. If something will give, will move inside, genuinely move inside. Hashem is genuine. So if something will genuinely move inside, all the doors will open up for you. Hashem is waiting for us to do teshuva. He's waiting and anxiously waiting for us to do But Hashem is genuine. <laughs> it's not, you can't fake it. Even the minimal, at least the minimal level of Teshuvah. 
But the minimal level of tshuva has to be a broken heart. There has to be a genuine shift inside, a change. Something has to give. If you're not ready to give up anything, you're not ready to go out of your comfort zone, then godliness can't, can't, can't be present. Well, in such a state, the evil person will find it well nigh impossible to praise Hashem fittingly because of the confusing alien thoughts which are thrust upon him. Thus, an individual will become contrite of heart when he con- contemplates how his soul has been uprooted from its source because of a sin incurring excision or death by divine agency. The Alter Rebbe now goes on to say that even sins which do not carry so harsh a penalty may still have the same effect. This alone is enough, fuel enough to bring a person to, to contrition, to a broken heart. When you realize how you've uprooted yourself from your natural state, which is godliness, receiving your life force from Hashem, and instead you have deliberately uprooted your life and chosen to receive your life force instead of receiving it from Hashem. Now you're receiving life force from Khalipa, from the negative energy. So that alone, and so much so that even if you want to connect with Hashem, it's impossible. That alone will break your heart. Because you realize how alienated you've become. You've become alienated from your own home, your own home that you grew up in, and your own family. And here you are in foreign, foreign pastures. So that alone is enough to break your heart. But that's extreme. That's a severe, extreme case. When a Jew violates a sin where your life is cut off, most Jews, when it comes to a sin where the Torah says your life is cut off, they'll desist. They just can't cross that line. There are certain lines you can't cross. Certain red lines you can't cross. There are certain no-nos, absolutes, no matter what, over my dead body. So usually for most Jews, doing a sin where the Torah says your life will be cut off, it's just not an option. That's why most Jews come to Shul on Yom Kippur, fast on Yom Kippur. It's just not an option. I'm a Jew. How can I eat on Yom Kippur? I don't care what. I don't care how far I am. I don't care. But I'm a Jew. I just can't do that. Most Jews celebrate Pesach. Because Pesach, if you don't bring the sacrifice, you lose your life. Pesach is so basic and fundamental. It's like a red line. How can I not? Circumcision. Most Jews will have a circumcision. Because, again, it's a red line. The Torah says your life will be cut off. If you don't have a circumcision, your life is cut off. I just can't do that. I'm a Jew. I don't care where I'm at. So there's certain things which you just can't cross that line. But here you're talking about a Jew who did cross that line. He's completely uprooted himself, cut himself off from his people, cut himself off and crossed that line and now he's receiving his life force not from godliness but from, from, from uh, impurity. So that's enough to break your heart. When you realize what you have done, how alienated you become, how far, how distant you become. But what if a Jew doesn't cross that red line? He just violates other sins, minor sins. He says, even those sins, if you re- realize 
the effect of sin, the effect that it has on us, because our soul is so genuine, our soul is so delicate, our soul is so real, that everything that we do registers. Our soul is so sensitive, everything that we do has an effect on our soul. Our soul is so loving and so filled with, so connected, that the slightest thing has a tremendous effect. You know, the more sensitive the uh, environment, the smallest thing could affect it. You know, the, those who work, I mean, you go into hospitals, you have to be extremely careful, you have to wash, you, you have to put in an apron, you have to, you because know, the smallest bacteria could affect the life of the patient. When they work in these, um, in these wafers, they create for, for uh, the computers, you know, they have to wear spacesuits or because the slightest dust could destroy this billion dollar because uh, it's so delicate so you have to be so careful the soul is so delicate and it's so real that the slightest thing has an effect on us and has a major effect on us we're not sensitive so we don't realize it but the soul is very sensitive and the fact is whether we feel it or not whether we appreciate it or not or experience it or not, the soul experiences it. The soul is devastated. Every time that we sin, it's devastating for the soul. It's just completely devastating for the soul. It's so damaging. It's like a knockout punch. The soul reels every time we do a sin. And the soul never gets used to it. It's not like a person sins for 40 years. Okay, now I'm used to it. No, we get used to it. Our soul never gets used to it. Because our soul is a live wire. Our soul is so connected. It never gets used to it. It's like the first time. It's like putting your hand into fire. You never get used to it. Even if you've done it, even if someone did it to you a hundred times. It's just as painful. So when you realize that even the small sins, what we call the small sins, you don't cut your soul off entirely. You just cut off a strand. You weaken the connection. But for the soul, you realize how devastating it is for the soul. That alone is also enough to lead you to a contrite heart, to break your heart, to break your false bravado, your false arrogance, your false sense of ego, your false sense of complacency, your false sense of being full of yourself and proud of yourself, um, and enough to break through that shell and to reach your neshama to get you to change, to get you to open up to change. Even one who has never violated a sin punishable by excision or a sin incurring death by divine agency, such as bane, emission, and the like, but other less severe sins, nonetheless, since they cause a defect in the spirit and divine soul, as in the analogy of the fine strands of a rope that are defective or severed, as noted above, which describes 613 strands that together comprise the lifeline of the soul, and when one transgresses one of the 613 commandments, one of these strands is severed. Therefore, through an immaculation of sins, there can eventually be a defect as grave as from one prohibition involving excision or death. This would be true even when a single sin is repeated numerous times, far from merely damaging the self-same strand repeatedly, the repetition of even the same sin weakens and jeopardizes the growth as a whole. Earlier in the last chapter, he gave the analogy, the Torah says that Jacob is a chevel 
Machalos, it literally means a portion of God's inheritance. But Chevel literally means a rope. And he used the analogy of a rope, just like a rope is made up of 613 strands. So every Jew has a rope where our soul is connected to, to above with these, through the 613 mitzvot. Every Jew, even though some mitzvot are not applicable to us, but every Jew has this connection through the 613 mitzvot. When you do a mitzvah, you strengthen the connection. When you sin, it's like cutting off one strand, another strand. When you do a sin where the Torah says karis, it's like you cut the whole rope. You cut off your whole connection. But obviously, you do your math. If you do cut one strand here, another strand there, another strand there, another strand there, you can have the same effect. You cut a whole bunch of strands, you're gonna, by the time you're done, there won't be any rope left. <laughs> but he's saying even more than that. Even if it's one particular sin, we all have our weaknesses. Everyone has their areas, our weaknesses. So it's one sin. I'm very strong in the other, other areas. But one area in my life, I'm very vulnerable. And if, but if you repeat the same sin, even though it's one strand, but by repeating the same sin over and over and over again, it could have the accumulation of that slight minor sin. The accumulation of it could have the same effect as cutting off the whole rope. Now that's something very novel. So to help us understand that, he brings an analogy. In this manner, the prophet compares sins to a cloud that dims the light of the sun. As the verse states, I have erased your transgression like a thick cloud that can dissipate. He's going to bring a physical analogy of a curtain. There's a thin curtain that doesn't allow the sun to go through. But if you add many thin curtains together then it's going to block out the sun. It'll have the same effect as if you have a dark cloud that makes it look like night. So if you put one thin curtain, it's not going to stop the sun, but if you put many, many thin curtains, your room will become pitch black because it won't allow the sun to go through. But then, the Rebbe also brings a proof from Halacha. It says, V'chai imach, that Judaism was given to live. From this, the rabbis learned that if a Jews' life is in danger, you have to violate the Torah in order to sustain life. Because Torah is a Torah of life. It's given to live, and not to die. So are you allowed to desecrate Shabbat to sustain life? So let's say a person is dying and he has to eat. Doctors say he has to eat or he's going to die. But the only food I can give him is, I have two choices. Either I can slaughter an animal, slaughter it properly, halachically, so, and give him kosher food. Or, I have a choice of giving him non-kosher food. And by feeding him less than the amount, the Torah says, that whenever the Torah says you're not allowed to eat, it has to be an olive's worth. What if a person eats less than an olive's worth? So you don't get any, any punishment because it's less than the amount. And there's an argument whether it's less than the amount, if it's biblically forbidden, it's only rabbinically forbidden. But it's not the same as violating the prohibition where you get lashes. So here I have a choice. Don't forget, mind, you have to keep in mind, when the Torah says you're allowed to desecrate Shabbat in order to sustain life, it means that 
sustaining life overrides the prohibition. So however you can minimize the prohibition, you try to minimize. It doesn't mean that it's like a weekday, it suddenly becomes like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. No, it's Shabbat. You're not allowed to do work. But we're overriding. It's an emergency measure to sustain life. So since it's an emergency measure, really you're not allowed to violate Shabbat. It's an emergency measure. Therefore, try as much as you can to minimize the desecration and the violation. So here I have a choice. I can slaughter the animal. Slaughtering is one of the 39 categories of work that are biblically prohibited on Shabbat. The person who slaughters on Shabbat, he does it intentionally, he gets stoned to death. On the other hand, you have a prohibition. In the Torah, thou shalt not eat non-kosher food. It's only a prohibition. You get lashes, but there's no death penalty, especially if I'm eating less than the amount. I'm going to eat less than the prohibition. The prohibition says you're not allowed to eat an olive's worth. I'm going to eat less than that. So what do you think? Logically, you would think, which one should I do? I have a choice. I'm going to violate a prohibition in the Torah. The question is, which prohibition should I violate? The prohibition against Shabbat, by slaughtering the animal and feeding him kosher food, or the prohibition against not eating kosher food? Which, which I have a choice. Either way, will save his life. I have choice A, choice B. I can slaughter the animal and feed him kosher food, and I'll violate Shabbat, and therefore save his life that way, or I can violate the prohibition, nothing to do with Shabbat, violate the prohibition of eating non-kosher food, and thereby save his life. What should I feed him? What should I do? Should I give him the kosher food? Should I slaughter the animal and give him kosher food? Or should I feed him non-kosher food? Non-kosher. You say non-kosher. You sure it's going to be enough? Yeah, no, we're sure. Let's say it's enough. No, I can feed at a time. I can eat... Yeah, you have to wait a few minutes and then you feed him a little at a time. Either six minutes or eight minutes. If you, every, 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 you feed him. And let's say it would do the trick. It doesn't have to, you know, that will do the trick. If the next three hours, every six minutes or eight minutes, you feed him less than an hour's worth. With the non-kosher, you Force in it to yeah, because when the Torah says you're allowed to, then uh, then the spark, then it has a life force. Exactly. So everyone seems that's a lot. That would logically you would say, it's really the non-kosher food. So the Ran says no, and that's halacha. The Rebbe brings halacha in the laws of Shabbos about saving life, and he says, person who is ill. And he was dying. And he needs meat. The doctor says he has to eat meat. You have a choice. Either you can slaughter the animal, or you can feed him meat that's not kosher, or that wasn't slaughtered properly. The Allah is, better slaughter the animal. Why? We have the option. We can give him the non-kosher meat. And we have the option of feeding him less than a kazayas, less than olive oil. Feed him a little bit at a time. And the reason is because although when you slaughter on Shabbos, you're violating a prohibition which is death, a prohibition that comes with a death sentence, and the worst death sentence, the most severest death sentence, stoning. But nevertheless, it's a one-time thing. 
you slaughter it once and it's done with. You violated the prohibition. And from now on, everything you're doing is kosher. But here, even though it's a minor prohibition, doesn't come with a death penalty, and you're eating less than the amount, and there's no lashes, even though it's still biblically prohibited, but every time you're eating, you're violating a prohibition. So many times violating a minor prohibition is the equivalent of one time doing a severe, violating a severe prohibition. And that's the point, is that the Rebbe says this is the source you find even in Allah, what Al Rebbe is saying here, that he's equating violating a prohibition of currency, life is cut off. You've crossed the red line, you've cut yourself off from holiness and godliness. You've completely transferred your, your, your life from, you're receiving now your life, vitality from the opposite of holiness. And the equivalent of that is if you do violate one minor prohibition, but you do it repeatedly. So even though you're repeating the same prohibition, but by repeating it many, many times, it has the same effect. And in a way, it could be even worse. Like we find here halachically, it's worse to eat less than a kezayis. And it's only a minor prohibition, and it's less than a kezayis. There's no, there's no even penalty of lashes at that point. But since by repeating it and doing it often, it has, it's worse, and it has greater damage, it does greater damage than a one-time prohibition of a death of a death sentence, of a, of a sin that comes with a, with a death penalty, the severest sin. Okay, and he brings the verse, as the verse states, I've erased your transgression like a thick cloud. And then he continues, and your sins are like a cloud. So the verse is referring to, to two different categories of sins. The first sin, the sins that are compared to a thick cloud, continue, this refers... This refers to the great sins that are barriers between the internal aspect of the power flowing forth from the pterogrammation and the divine soul. This is like the separation of a thick, dark cloud that stands between the sun and the earth within its inhabitants. So when there's a thick cloud, the light is completely blocked out. So when a Jew does a severe sin, it's like a thick, heavy cloud. And doesn't allow the source, doesn't allow Hashem, the source of life, the source of godliness to infuse our soul. That's the first half. That's that type of sin, a thick cloud. And then he says, like a cloud, meaning, meaning, continue, and the above verse continues. And your sins like a cloud, these are lesser sins than men tramples under his heel. Sins that obscure as does a thing as whiskey cloud. Right, it's cloudy outside, but I still see the sun, it's still light. Sometimes it's so thick that, it, that day can turn into night. That's a thick cloud. Thin cloud is cloudy, but it still doesn't block the sun so much. It's a thin cloud. When the Jew does a strict, a severe sin, you violate a sin that comes with a death sentence or death penalty, even from the hands of heaven, it's like a thick cloud. You've severed your connection, you've disconnected yourself, you've darken the light. If you do a th- small sin, a minor sin, you create a cloud. It's cloudy. It's not clear. You know, you're not in L.A., you're not in Miami. It's cloudy. <laughs> so you've created some interference between you and heaven. 
but it's not the same as a thick cloud. In the illustration, if one obscures the sunlight streaming through a window with many fine and flimsy curtains, they will darken as much as one thick curtain will, and even more. So if you add many, many thin clouds, if you add many, many thin, thin layers, by the time you add it all up together, it, it has the same effect as the thick, thick curtain. This is exactly so in the analogy with all those cloud-like sins upon which man tramples indifferently because they seem to be of little import they obscure, obscure the divine light by their multitudinous repetition as do many fine curtains darkening as much as one thick curtain will and even more even more right so we have to be careful by repeating a sin many, many times, especially those sins that we trample on, we don't pay attention to, we get used to it, and it's no big deal, and it just becomes habit. But one little sin, another little sin, another little sin, and before you know it, it's not just quantity, but it changes, it qualitatively changes. Suddenly it has the same effect as a thick cloud. It becomes like a thick curtain that completely obscures and blocks the light. So too with our soul. It has the effect on our soul. You do a little sin here, and, a little, and even the same sin, you repeat it, and do it once, twice, and many, many times, it, suddenly it darkens our soul. It doesn't allow our soul to receive its life from holiness. So when a person makes an honest accounting, you become a master accountant, and you realize all those slight sins that we don't pay attention to, we violate without even thinking twice, but we repeat constantly, we realize how it blackens our soul and completely darkens our soul and doesn't allow our soul to receive that light. So that's enough to break your heart. And now he's going to add how much more so the sins, certain individual sins, which the rabbis compare to idolatry. Very few sins that the rabbis, that the Torah compares to idolatry. Idolatry is the worst. It's denying God. It's denying everything. So when you compare a sin to idolatry, it just gives us an inkling of how, how, how terrible the sin is that even though it's not physically idolatry, but it has the same effect as idolatry in terms of the damage it does to your soul. And it becomes like a thick cloud that blocks out the light, obscures the light, and doesn't allow the godliness to shine through. And then we become dead inside. And we no longer respond to anything godly. We become dead to anything godly. You know, this is not, this no longer becomes our life. This is not what we're about. It's not what we live for. We don't respond to it. We become completely dead to it. And for a Jew to become completely dead to godliness, this is worse than death. Because when you die physically, your body dies. But when you die spiritually, spiritual death is so much worse than physical death. You know, we cry over physical death. But when you realize that something died inside of us, 
know, there, was so, there was a funeral. Someone died. He was 70 years old. They said, really, he died when he was 30. Said, we buried him when he was 70. <laughs> but spiritually, he died a long time ago. <laughs> when you realize that spiritual death is so much more tragic than physical death, because physical death is temporary. As long as your soul is alive, your soul continues to live. But when you die spiritually, it's so much more tragic. We don't sense it. That's the biggest sign that we're dead inside. <laughs> the fact that we don't mourn and our spiritual death doesn't bother us. We don't care about it. We're so insensitive. We don't do so desensitized. It means nothing to us. We're completely indifferent. That, that's the biggest sign how dead we are. We're so dead that we don't even realize what's going on. But a person who has any spiritual sensitivity, if you realize the tragedy of physical death, how tragic it is and how it breaks our heart. Imagine the tragedy of spiritual death, dying inside. What kind of life is it? You're externally alive and you're successful, and, but internally you're dead. It's not worth it. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's, it has no value. What, if I'm not connected to the source of life, if I'm not alive, if I'm not connected to Hashem, if I'm dead, then, it, then it's, it doesn't mean anything. If you cry for someone who's physically dead, how much more so you should cry for spiritual death? And that's enough to break your heart. If you realize. That, and that's the path to teshuva. This is the straightest path to teshuva because this is, what's, this is the, what's addressing the root cause of the problem. The root cause of the problem is when you sin, you die. If you want to change, you want to do teshuva, it means you want to connect to life. You appreciate what life is. And you want to feel alive. And you want to be consciously alive and connected. And the only way to be alive is with Hashem, through Torah and mitzvot. So when you realize the effect that the sin has, even minor sin, especially those sins where the rabbis say are the equivalent of idolatry, that means the damage of these sins to the soul, it kills the soul. Because idolatry is the ultimate sin. Idolatry, the penalty of idolatry is stoning. It's the ultimate sin, the ultimate death penalty. It's the ultimate death to the soul. When you realize that these sins that the rabbi singled out, these four sins that the rabbi singled out, and the rabbi said, compared it to idolatry, that means that through these sins, our soul dies. Something dies inside of us. When you realize that you're dead inside, that's enough to break your heart. And that's the path that will lead to tshuva, to be open to change and growth. What are these four things? And certainly with those sins that our sages often warned against that are actually like idolatry and immorality and bloodshed. All three together. <laughs> the worst three sins that you have to give up your life for. For example, ignoring the needy. Concerning which scripture writes, Beware lest there be in your heart something unworthy. The Ya'al, here translated unworthy, is used in reference to idolatry. From which we learn that ignoring the needy is likened to idolatry. Right, the Torah uses the language in Deuteronomy, in Parshasari A, that let your heart, your evil heart, lest your evil heart will tell you not to lend to the poor, not to give tzedakah to the poor. So the Torah warns you, don't listen to your heart. So the, the Torah uses the language Beliau. Beliau is a language that the Torah uses for idolatry, to teach us that someone who's miserly, someone who's stingy, it's the equivalent of idolatry. That's, that's very, very strong language. To say that someone is stingy, someone who's not generous, 
someone that doesn't give tzedakah, doesn't give of himself, of his time, of his money, of himself, to help another person, someone who's a miser is the equivalent of idolatry. It's a very, very powerful statement. The rabbis don't just throw terms around. The Torah is not just... It's bad enough to be a miser. Why does the Torah have to tell us the equivalent of idolatry? Because it is. The damage that it does to your soul is the equivalent of idolatry. Because why is a person a miser? Because only a person who believes that he's a self-made man. It's my hard-earned money. I should give of my hard-earned money to someone else who's poor? Let him get a job. A person who feels that he's a self-made man, so he can't part with his money. Well, that's idolatry. Because everything that you have, existence, your health, your talents, your position, your abilities, your circumstances, your life, your success, everything that you have comes from Hashem. And it's pure tzedakah from Hashem's part. Because Hashem does know us a thing. So it's a gratuitous gift that Hashem gave us. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it. I just read this week that there were 12, another 12 billionaires who joined the club, who pledged to give half of their wealth away to charity. And one of them pledged to give 100%. And while the others pledged to give it after they're dead, he pledged to give it, I think, while he's alive. While he's alive and while after they die. Because if you realize that everything that you have comes from Hashem, and I know better than anyone, I'm not more deserving than the pauper in the street. If anything, that person is probably more deserving than me. Why did Hashem smile at me and I'm successful while the other person has to struggle? Not because I'm better, a better person, a more deserving person. So a person who appreciates the gift that Hashem gave him it's very easy to be charitable because God was charitable to me. So naturally, I have to be charitable to others. Just like God gave me, I in turn have to be godly and I have to give. But a person who's stingy, a penny pincher, who won't part with a penny, it's too painful for him to part with his money. There was a great Hasidic Rebbe in Europe and, uh, you know, he never had money. Any money he had, he would give away to tzedakah. And he was always suffering. He didn't have any money. He was deprived. And one time, this very, very wealthy person comes to the rabbi and puts down a whole bag of gold. He says, Rabbi, this is yours. To do with it whatever you like. Chassidim was so excited. He can pay up his debts. He can, he can do all the things he needs to do. To their horror, the rabbi took the bag and gave it back to him. And he walked out. Chassidim says, Rebbe, what did you just do? This is, God answered your prayers. You, you have no, no more financial needs. Covers all your deficits, plus you had enough to live. The Rebbe says, if you saw with what pleasure he took his money back, <laughs> you would understand. So a person is such a miser, so tight-fisted, so a flint, what do you, what do you call it? A skin flint. Person who can't part with his money, it's so painful, it's too painful. It's to watch him write the check. It's like it's like it hurts him. It physically hurts him to write the check, to give that, take that money and give it away. It just it's too painful to watch. 
This is idolatry. Imagine if someone came to you and said, I'm going to give you all the money in the world. I, I want to become partners with you in business. I'll provide all the money, the capital. You do the work. And you know what? You get to keep 90% of the profit. All I want is 10% of the profit. Would you take such a partner? <laughs> Please, where, where do you find such partners? <laughs> would you begrudge your partner the 10%? You would gladly give. He says, I'll give you 20%. I'll even give you 30% if you want. But I'll give you 20%. Well, that's what stuck is. Hashem says, I'm giving you everything. I gave you health. I gave you success. I gave you your existence. I gave you a... I'm giving you everything. All I ask, you keep 90% of the profit. Just give me 10%. With pleasure. Where do I write the check to? Please. That's why you have to give tzedakah. The Torah says a person who has an evil heart and says, why should I give from my money to him? That's idolatry. It means you're denying God. You're a self-made man. God has nothing to do with it. You're falsely attributing your success to yourself. That's idolatry. That's so damaging to the soul. That darkens your soul. That blackens your soul. The essence of holiness is giving. Holiness means to give. God gives. To be godly and godlike means to give. Not only physically. It's not only money. Not everyone has money. A person can give from his time. A person can give from himself. You can visit the sick. There's many things you can do personally. It's not only... But everyone, whatever we have, we give, we share. Whatever God gave us, we share, we give. That's what being Jewish is. That's what being godly is. But a person who's blial, an evil heart, who begrudges and thinks, why should I give and why should I... It's my money and why should I give him? And This is idolatry. This is the equivalent of idolatry. I'm not bowing down to an idol, but it's the same thing. When the Torah compares two things, it's a real comparison. Because it comes from ego, it comes from arrogance, because you're worshipping yourself. You're denying God. Just like the idolater denies God, you are denying God. Because if you acknowledge God, then you would give, you would be generous, and you would give it gladly, and with pleasure. So that's one, one thing. So a person who realizes, does a master accountant, and realizes that he's stingy, that his soul is darkened and blackened with this thick cloud and completely covers up and disconnects you from Hashem. That's one thing. That's enough to break your heart. Another thing is, the rabbi said, Well, it's hell-bearing, the evil tongue that is equated to idolatry, morality, and what? We just read, Lashon, the Mitzorah. Mitzorah which is loosely translated as leprosy, comes as a result of Lashon Hara. And what's the punishment? Worse than any other punishment. Worse than any other impurity. You have to be isolated, quarantined. You have to be kicked out, expelled from the camp. You can't be amongst other Jews. You can't even be amongst other impure people. You can't even be amongst other lepers. You have to be completely isolated, which is the equivalent of death for a human being to live in isolation. It's like uh, solitary confinement is the worst punishment. A human being, we're social creatures by nature. We need that interaction. Because it's the worst thing. Lush and horror. Abusing the gift that God gave you. The gift of the tongue. The gift of speech. 
Only human beings speak, have the ability of speech. Speech is communication. Speech is, is the ultimate expression of our soul. To take this gift that God gave you, to speak, and instead of using it to create relationships, instead of using it in a wholesome way, instead of using it to see the good in other people, you use it. You abused this power that Hashem gave us. And you used it to slander, to malign, to hurt, to create divisions. This is, this is the equivalent of idolatry. This is the worst. This leads to idolatry. The equivalent of idolatry. Because again, you're denying God. If you believe in God, and God gave us this gift of communication, this gift of speech, which makes us godly. We are created in the image of God because we have the ability to speak. We are God's language. God creates us through His speech. The whole universe is created through speech. Everything is through speech. We are God's language. And we are created in the image of God. We also have that ability to speak and to create and to communicate and to create relationships. And instead, we abuse this ability and we use it negatively to speak slander, to criticize, to hurt, to harm, to berate. You know, with speech we can do a lot more damage than we can through, you can beat someone up, you can't do the same damage as you can through speech. You can destroy a person through speech. You beat someone up, okay, he'll heal. But when you berate someone, when you destroy someone with speech, and you slander them, and you ruin their reputation, and you destroy their good name, uh, that damage is irreplaceable. The damage is much worse than anything you can do physically. So you've taken this tremendous gift, and instead of using it to create cement relationships, create relationships, you've destroyed. Destroyed people, destroyed worlds. God used speech to create worlds. God gave us the ability to speak, to create worlds, to create relationships. Instead, you're destroying worlds. Every human being is a world. You've used that to destroy a world. So that's the equivalent of idolatry. The damage that it does on the person is the equivalent of idolatry, adultery, and murder, all three combined. Likewise, the vile tempered is like the idolatrous... Humanities brings, it's in the Zohar, and it says, Kolakoyas, whoever gets angry, is the equivalent of idolatry. And Alter Rebbe explains elsewhere in the Tanya, in the letters, in the next segment of the Tanya, which please God will get there soon, that if you, if you get angry, if you lose your temper, it's equivalent of idolatry. Why? What's the connection? Okay, you're not allowed to get angry. We know you're not allowed to get angry. It's not healthy. It's not good. It's detrimental. It does more damage to yourself than it does to anyone else. But why? What's the connection of getting angry, losing your temper, is the equivalent of idolatry? Alter Rebbe explains... Because why are you getting angry? Because you're attributing powers to the other person. The other person hurt me. How dare you insulted me? How dare you did this to me? How dare you said this to me? How could you do this? What are you saying? You're attributing powers to the other person. When in fact we know that no one has any power to hurt another person. We don't have freedom of choice to hurt another person. No one lifts up a pinky unless it's declared in heaven. So if I was insulted, if I was harmed, if I was hurt... Who hurt me? Who insulted me? Who harmed me? Not that person. That person is a nobody. I am nothing and he's nothing. He doesn't hurt me. He has no power to hurt me. 
So who has the power to hurt me? Because it was decreed in heaven that I should be insulted, that I should get hurt. Why was it decreed in heaven? That's a wake-up call to me. Something is wrong in my spiritual life. Hashem is not happy. So I better take it up with Hashem. It's a wake-up call. But don't attribute any powers to that person. He has a power to hurt you. He has a power to harm you. He's just a messenger. No one asked him to volunteer. No one asked him to be an agent. And that wasn't his intention. And that's why he has to apologize and he has to ask forgiveness. And he sinned and there's no question. The one who hurt you and harmed you. But me to get angry at him? As Joseph told the brothers, I should be angry at you. You sold me into slavery. You're nothing. And I am nothing. God sold me into slavery. And now we know why. It was all for a good reason. But you're, you, why should I get angry at you? I get angry at you. You have no power to do that. You have no power to sell me into slavery. Hashem sold me into slavery. So, so when you attribute powers to another person, you get angry at another person, it's idolatry. You're denying God. What you're saying is that that person, you empower the other person. You turn him into a God. He has the power to hurt me. That there's an entity outside of God that has the power to hurt me. That's why I'm getting angry at him. How dare you said that to me? How dare you insult me? How dare you did that to me? He did that? He insulted? He's nobody. And I am nobody. All there is is Hashem. So it's the equivalent of idolatry. So a person who loses his temper... It's not just, okay, it's not healthy for you, it's not emotionally healthy if you lose your temper. It's idolatry. It's the worst sin. It's the equivalent, it's such, it creates a black cloud, a thick cloud, it creates such a darkness in your soul. It cuts, off, cuts you off from Hashem, it cuts you off from the light, it cuts you off from God. In the most complete way, just like idolatry does. It has the same effect in your soul as idolatry does. It completely blackens your soul. And then, the last thing. There are many such cases okay. described in the Talmud of sins whose punishment is not as severe as that of idolatry and light, but which nonetheless affect a similar spiritual punishment. Actually, it's very interesting. In the Talmud, in the tractate that we study during this time period, Sota, which has 49 pages, and we study it during Pesach and Shavuos, during the Omer, as we're counting the Omer. So... Every day we study a different page. So in the beginning of this tractate, the Talmud spends a whole page, two sides, describing the evils of arrogance. How God despises the arrogant person. God can't stand the arrogant person. And it's amazing. Abdu who sins, God says, I can live with him. I can live with him. God is infinite. And his patience is infinite. You sin. You're human. I can handle it. But when it comes to a Jew who doesn't sin, he's brilliant, and he hasn't sinned. But he's so full of himself, and so taken of himself, and so arrogant, God says, I can't be in the same presence of him. I can't be in the same four cubits. I can't stand I hate him. Imagine. Even though God is infinite, and his patience is infinite, but when it comes to a person who's arrogant, God loses his patience. I have no patience with this miserable creature. But he hasn't sinned. He studies Talmud. He's brilliant. If you have any doubts, he'll be the first one to tell you how brilliant he is. 
And God says, I can't stand this miserable creature. I can't be in the same four cubits. What's so terrible? I have a healthy ego. I have to know my strength. I have to know who I am. There's nobody in the world like me. But God says, I can't stand this person. Because what's the meaning of God? What's the ultimate meaning of God? Ultimate meaning of God is there's no other reality but God. All there is is God. If God is real, God is an absolute reality. There is no other reality outside of God. There's no space empty of God. There is no, nothing else. Ain't as the Torah says many times. There is nothing but God. A person who's egotistical, you're denying God's reality because you're saying there's God and there's I. The moment you say there's God and there's I, it's a denial of God's absolute, ultimate reality. Because the truth is, all there is is God. There is nothing else but God. From God's point of view, there's nothing else but God. And that's the ultimate point of view. So the moment the person is egotistical and arrogant, is so full of himself, it's a direct denial of God. So what you're saying is, there's God in his eye. So maybe God is in 99.9% of the universe, but, but then there's I. <laughs> so a person who's full of himself, a person who's arrogant, a person who's egotistical, a person who's egomaniac, he'd be very religious. Torah so filled with ego and so filled with I. It's all about me, how brilliant I am and how sharp I am and how smart I am and how clever I am. And how bril- it's I, 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 I. And it gets worse. Because even the Torah that you're doing, what's the point of the whole Torah? So I should get a share in the world to come. It's the ultimate expression of ego. At least when the person dies, at least your ego comes to an end. At least something good comes out of it. That's why death is an atonement. Your ego comes to an end. But here, no. My ego goes on forever. The eternal ego. It never stops being about myself. It's all about me. And then afterlife is all about me. I'm studying Torah. I'm going to get a share in the world to come. I'm going to get rewarded. I'm going to be praised and rewarded. The I never stops. It never ends. It goes on forever and ever. This is the equivalent of idolatry. It's the antithesis of holiness, the antithesis of godliness. And it blackens your soul just like as if you physically were to worship an idol. Could you imagine? That's what the Talmud is saying. It's the equivalent of idolatry. As if you physically bow down to the idol. Everyone knows if you physically bow down to an idol, you cut yourself off, you completely, your soul is completely in the darkest place, the thickest of clouds, there's absolutely no light coming through, you have to be stoned to death, you've completely severed, disconnected yourself. Well, a Jew who doesn't sin and studies Torah all day, but is so filled with arrogance and ego and I and I and I and I and never ends and never stops. Your soul is so blackened. Your soul is in such a dark place. It's the equivalent of it so if a Jew is a master accountant and you take accounting of all of these things it's enough to break your heart and then we conclude and the sin of neglecting the study of the Torah equals them all as our sages assert God has overlooked idolatry immortality and bloodshed but has not overlooked the sin of neglecting Torah study the sins such ignoring the needy Talibering and so on 
though not carrying the punishment of extinction of death by the hand of heaven, nonetheless sever the soul from its divine source. Chazal say, the rabbis say, in the Medrash, and the Jerusalem Talmud, that by the destruction of the first temple, the Jewish people were idolaters, adulterers, and murderers. But had they been engaged in Torah, had their minds, had they been engaged in Torah study, God was ready to forgive them for everything. He was ready to forgive them for their idolatry, for their adultery, and for their murder. But as long as they would be engaged in Torah. But since they were not engaged in Torah, God says, I'm not going to forgive, and that's why the temple was destroyed. So we see, what do we see from this? That studying of Torah weighs heavier, weighs more, carries more weight than idolatry, adultery, and murder. That it, had they studied Torah, God, it would have overweighed, it would overcome the deficit, the negative energy of idolatry, adultery, and murder. So therefore, what do we see from this? If a Jew doesn't study Torah, a Jew is not engaged in studying Torah, even though you don't get the punishment of idolatry, adultery, and murder, but the effect that it has on your soul is surely equivalent, if not worse, than someone who committed idolatry, adultery, and murder. We see that there are many things that even though they appear to be minor sins and not in the same category, not in the same family of sins where you cut off your soul. But let's face it, how many Jews violate sins where the Torah says you cut off your soul? Many Jews are not brazen enough. Many Jews have fear. It's a red line you just won't cross. I don't want to be cut off. I'm a Jew. I'm proud of it. I don't want to be disconnected. But when you think about all these minor sins, and you realize even when you do a minor sin, especially if you repeat it many, many times, it has the same effect. It darkens your soul. And especially all these things that the rabbis compared to idolatry. It has the same effect. For example, being stingy. We can all find a little stinginess in ourselves. Uh, telling Lashon Hara, that's... Uh, <laughs> no one is exempt. <laughs> Losing our temper, unfortunately, it happens a little too often. Um, arrogance, we wouldn't know anything about that, but <laughs> ego, arrogance, not studying Torah, especially shaming someone in public and not studying Torah, unfortunately, or not being fully engaged in Torah, unfortunately all these things are quite prevalent. So when you realize that through all these things you darken your soul and you black out the sun and you black out the light like a thick cloud and you disconnect yourself from Hashem, when you realize the damage that you've done internally, you become dead inside. And I wonder why you, don't, you no longer respond to godly things. When you're naturally alive and healthy and in tune, you naturally respond to godly things. You get excited when you do a mitzvah, when you're praying, you come alive. When you do someone a favor, you come alive. A, a holiday, a Shabbat, you feel it, you experience it, you're, you're soaring, you're, 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 you're walking high but suddenly you feel dead inside. You're not responding. Torah is more of a burden. Mitzvot are a burden. Shabbat is a burden. Especially in the summer, such long, long, so long. And, but it's because you're dead inside. You're no longer responding naturally to, to life, to reality, to godliness. Because you've severed yourself, you've disconnected yourself, and now you're no longer receiving your life sustenance from godliness, from holiness. You're receiving it from darkness, from evil, from negativity. So when you realize this, it's enough to crush your heart. It's enough to break your heart. Because spiritual death is worse than physical death. If you cry over physical death, and someone dies suddenly, you cry. It's so tragic. How much more so you can cry 
and it's much more tragic. It's a greater tragedy. A spiritual death is a much greater tragedy, especially if I'm the one who killed myself. So I'm committing spiritual suicide. So, so that's enough to crush your heart. It's enough to break your heart. It's enough to cause you to change inside, to be ready to shift, to change. Something should change inside, to do teshuva, and to start your road, to start healing and restoring yourself and reconnecting yourself. So this is the way, this is how you address the root cause of sin. The root cause of sin is arrogance. When you break your heart and your heart is broken, then you've plowed the field, now you're open, you've softened your heart, now you're open, the seed can take root, now something can grow, you can change your life, you can create something new, something that will take root something that will nourish and sustain you, something that's genuine and real, and you can build a life, a genuine life, a real life, something that will give you nachas, that will nourish you and nurture you, that's wholesome and it's genuine and it's real, instead of wasting your days and wasting your life on emptiness, on nothingness, on klipa. To be continued. So next week we'll finish chapter 3. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.